Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. finished. Now you die. You know, even I'd have a hard time as a six foot six tall person outrunning that dastardly tall man. Hi there, welcome to Science Factual, the show that dives into the facts behind your favorite science fiction. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and for this week's episode, we take a step out of the sci-fi realm and into the science fantasy horror realm with a look at the cult classic film Phantasm from 1979. And if this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. But I thought Spooky Month was last month. Well, unfortunately, you'd be right. However, as part of Slasher Saturdays by Forgotten Fantasies and the Ha Ha Harvest Festival, Science Factual went live at the 4th Wall PDX to learn more about the film and our guests, Ryan Danley from Another Goddamn Horror Podcast, Michael Garcia from Forgotten Fantasies, and comedian Max Brockman before we got to riffing on some of the best scenes from the movie. Now, as the light fades from this sinister graveyard, I believe I hear the whispers of a... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! And do heed this alert. I'll be getting into the major plot points of the original film, plus during the interview we'll be discussing specific scenes, so consider yourself spoiled by this alert. Phantasm is a 1979 American science fantasy horror film that was directed, written, photographed, and edited by Don Coscarelli. The first film in the Phantasm franchise, it introduces the Tall Man, a supernatural and malevolent undertaker who turns the dead of Earth into dwarf zombies to be sent to his planet and used as slaves. He is opposed by a young boy, Mike, who tries to convince his older brother Jody and family friend Reggie of the threat the Tall Man poses. Phantasm was a locally financed independent film with the cast and crew made up of mostly amateurs and aspiring professionals. Though initial reviews were mixed in regard to the dreamlike, surreal narrative and imagery, later reception was more positive and the film became a cult classic. It has appeared on several critics' lists of best horror films and it has been cited as an influence on later horror series. It was followed by four sequels, Phantasm 2 in 1988, Phantasm 3 Lord of the Dead in 1994, Phantasm 4 Oblivion 1998, and Phantasm Ravager in 2016. We won't be getting into the sequels too much, being that there's plenty to get into with just the first film, which is arguably the best in the series. Alrighty, let's jump right on into things with the synopsis from Phantasm 1. While having sex in the Morningside Cemetery, Tommy is stabbed by a woman who's actually the tall man, the Morningside mortician, in another form. At the funeral, Tommy's friends, Jody and Reggie, believe he committed suicide. Jody's 13-year-old brother Mike secretly observes the funeral and sees the tall man placing Tommy's heavy casket, seemingly with little or no effort, back into the hearse instead of completing the burial. Mike then goes to a local fortune teller and tells her what he saw. She has him stick his hand in a black box and at first something seems to grab it while the granddaughter of the fortune teller tells him to not fear the contents of the box, which then releases him as he relaxes. Later, Jody is seduced by the Lady in Lavender, aka the Tall Man, and taken to the cemetery to have sex. However, they are interrupted by Mike, who has been following Jody and has been driven out from his hiding place by a short, hooded figure. Mike tries to tell Jody about the hooded figure, but Jody dismisses the story. At the mausoleum, Mike is accosted by the cemetery caretaker but escapes after the most iconic kill scene in the movie takes place involving the infamous silver sphere and a fountain of blood. Mike then flees from the tall man and as he slams a door to get away, the tall man's fingers get caught and then cut off but continue to move, dripping yellow ichor. Taking one of the fingers with him, Mike escapes the mausoleum. The still-moving finger is enough to convince Jody about Mike's stories. Before Jody can bring the finger to the sheriff, it transforms into a flying insect. Reggie, who witnesses the finger-turned-insect attack them, joins the brothers in their suspicions. Jody goes to the cemetery alone, but is chased away by dwarves and a seemingly driverless hearse. He's rescued by Mike and Jody's badass Hemi-Cuda, that's a Plymouth Barracuda with a 446-barrel Hemi in it. 
the hearse off the road, they discover that it was driven by one of the hooded figures, a reanimated and shrunken Tommy, whom they hide in Reggie's ice cream truck. Reggie and Jody resolve to defeat the tall man, while Mike is hidden in an antique store owned by Jody's friends, Sally and Sue. There, Mike discovers an old photograph of the tall man and insists on being taken back home. On the way, Mike, Sally, and Sue come across the ice cream truck, overturned where they are attacked by a mob of the hooded dwarves. Mike manages to escape, presuming the girls and Reggie are dead. Meanwhile, Jody goes to the mausoleum to kill the tall man, first locking Mike in his bedroom for safety. Mike escapes with an awesome MacGyvered hammer shotgun, but runs into the tall man who was waiting for him outside his front door. He kidnaps Mike in a hearse, but Mike escapes and causes the hearse to strike a pole and explode. Looking for Jody in the mausoleum, Mike is targeted by the Silver Sphere until Jody destroys it with a shotgun. Mike and Jody are reunited with Reggie, and together they enter a brightly lit room, which is filled with canisters containing more dwarves. Mike catches a brief glimpse through a portal, seeing a red-hot world where the dwarves are toiling away as slaves. God, I just grabbed him. separates the trio. Uh, left alone in the room, Reggie activates the portal, creating a powerful vacuum from which he narrowly escapes. In the ensuing storm, Reggie is stabbed by the Lady in Lavender while Jody and Mike flee and the mausoleum vanishes. Jody devises a plan to trap the tall man in an abandoned mineshaft and the tall man attacks Mike at home and chases him outside, where he eventually falls into the mineshaft trap and is buried under an avalanche of rocks triggered by Jody. After this, Mike wakes up in bed, still worried about the tall man. Reggie, still alive, tells Mike that he had a nightmare and that Jody died in a car wreck and proposes a road trip. That's not ironic. When Mike enters his bedroom to pack for the trip, the tall man appears and hands crash through the bedroom mirror, pulling Mike inside. Boy. Now, we can't talk about the film without getting into the cast a bit, starting, of course, with the tall man played by Angus Scrimm. After being intimidated by Scrimm on the set of a previous film, Coscarelli decided that Scrimm would make a great villain. Initially, Scrimm had little input into the character, but he made more of a contribution as Coscarelli began to trust his acting instincts. Scrimm was outfitted in lifts and a suit too small for him in order to make him seem even taller and skinnier, although he's just about six foot three. Coscarelli says of Scrim, I really didn't have any idea that he would take it to the level that he did. I could see it was going to be a very powerful character. Also, Angus Scrim is not the actor's real name. His real name is Lawrence Rory Guy, which people refer to him as in person. On the commentary, you can even hear the other three calling him Rory at times. As Scrim explains it, he had to pick a stage name from when he would do plays, quote, off campus, presumably when he was in acting school. He wasn't allowed to appear in plays off campus and chose the name Angus Scrim in case he was mentioned in reviews. It's a stage name he used until his death in 2016. Up next, we have Mike Pearson, played by A. Michael Baldwin. Uh, Coscarelli attributes the enduring popularity of the film to young audiences who respond to Mike's adventures. Then we have Mike's brother, Jody Pearson, played by Bill Thornbury. Jody is Mike's older brother, and after their parents die, Jody becomes Mike's guardian. But Jody confides in his friends that he's uncomfortable with that responsibility. Maybe that's because he keeps feeding the kid beers. Then, of course, we have Reggie, played by, you guessed it, Reggie Bannister. Don Coscarelli based the character of Reggie on his friend, Reggie Bannister, for whom the role was written. They then twisted the character into new directions over the course of the various films. Reggie was designed to be an everyman, a loyal friend, and the comic relief. He definitely does a good job at that. Then, of course, we have the Lady in Lavender, played by Kathy Lester, who is actually the tall man in the form of the Lady in Lavender, a form which he uses to seduce and kill Tommy, Jody's friend from the beginning of the film. Now that you're more familiar with the cast, let's get into some facts behind the film.
The idea to create the film came about when Reggie Bannister approached Don Coscarelli with the idea to adapt Ray Bradbury's novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, from 1983, which was to star A. Michael Baldwin and Don McCann from Kenny and Company. However, the two learned that very week that Bradbury had sold the novel's rights to Disney, and so Coscarelli sought an idea for a similar type of project. Don Coscarelli took the title Phantasm from the works of Edgar Allan Poe. It is a term frequently used by Poe in his writings while the genesis of the story came to him in a dream. One night in his late teens, Coscarelli dreamed of fleeing down endlessly long marble corridors, pursued by a chrome sphere intent on penetrating his skull with a wicked needle. There was also a quite futuristic sphere dispenser out of which the orbs would emerge and begin chase. Speaking of marble hallways, the ones seen in the mausoleum in the film are made out of plywood and cheap wallpaper. The spheres were designed by craftsman Willard Green, who charged the production a little over $1,100 for his services. Sadly, he died just after production completed at the end of 1977 and never saw his work on the big screen. By the way, the title was changed to The Never Dead for Australian audiences so as not to confuse it with the popular Aussie sex comedy Phantasm from 1976, which was also known as Phantasma, despite those titles beginning with an F and not a PH. Don Coscarelli's mother, novelist Kate Coscarelli, held several titles on the production and even used two aliases, S. Tyler and Shirley May, for production design and makeup costume design, respectively. She also wrote a novel adaptation based on the film, which was published in 2002, of which only 500 copies were produced. Coscarelli rented all of the filming equipment used to make this movie, always on Fridays, so that he could use it all weekend and return it on Mondays, all the while only having to actually pay for one day's rental on the equipment. Smart. Phantasm was shot over the course of a year, with cast and crew members getting together only on weekends to shoot straight through the three days. Coscarelli mentions that they had no permits and even had to tap into local residents' homes for power. It should be also noted that Coscarelli was only 23 when filming began and 25 when it was released. It was also his third feature film, his first two of which had been picked up by Universal Pictures and 20th Century Fox, respectively. Even the props were basically homemade, with items like the coffin that Mike sees the tall man lift by himself and shove back into the hearse, which was made out of balsa wood, empty, and had a rope on the side facing away from the camera to make it easier to handle. That rope can be briefly seen as the tall man lifts up the coffin. There are several references to Frank Herbert's Dune, including a bar named Dune, and a scene where Mike is forced to insert his hand into a black box that inflicts pain as part of a test. Because fear is the mind killer. The alien dwarves that toil away for the tall man are all played by children and bear a strong resemblance to the Jawas of Star Wars, but the design for the dwarves was already completed before Star Wars Episode IV A New Hope was released in 1977. In the daytime cemetery scene, a headstone that is featured prominently in two separate scenes is that of Cecilia Weiss. It's actually a recreation of the headstone of Harry Houdini's mother, with most of the actual inscription included. You know, I always wondered about that headstone. The effect of the mansion disappearing in a bright, colorful light was done by Joe Westheimer, who did many of the effects on the original Star Trek series. The effect of the mansion is the same one used for the transporter sequences on the show. In 1998, MGM re-released Phantasm on VHS to buy. The movie had a newly remastered Dolby Stereo soundtrack, and after the movie played, the video featured four minutes of scenes cut from the original. The cut footage was comprised of these two scenes. The first involved Mike entering a room with two coffins. One is open and a body inside. The other is closed, but Mike hears sounds from inside of it and thinks it's Reggie. As he tries to open the coffin, Reggie enters the room. When Mike sees him and then realizes that something unpleasant is in there, together the two close the coffin. Mike then tells Reggie that they need to find Jody. The second scene has Mike and Jody run into the tall man in the funeral home. Jody shoots the tall man several times with his shotgun, but it has no effect on him. He then knocks Mike onto the floor and picks up Jody by the neck with one hand. Mike sees a fire extinguisher and remembers when the tall man reacted badly when he passed by Reggie's ice cream truck with his refrigerator open. Mike realizes the tall man can be hurt by the cold, so he takes out the fire extinguisher and blasts the tall man with it as he's about to kill Jody. The tall man then withers in pain. Suddenly, he screams and his head explodes, splattering yellow blood all over the walls. Several other deleted scenes from Phantasm can be seen in the film Phantasm IV Oblivion, including the infamous tall man rope hanging sequence. Suffice to say, the dialogue is horrible, with one quote reading, My kid brother is one bad mother. Certified nerd J.J. Abrams revealed in an interview published in Entertainment Weekly that he came up with the name of the Captain Phasma character after seeing its chrome design. Quote, it reminded me of the ball in Phantasm. 
What's more is that in late 2015, Coscarelli showed a work-in-progress 4K resolution restoration of Phantasm, called Phantasm Remastered, at the But Numathon Film Festival. It was supervised by Coscarelli at Bad Robot Productions. Bad Robot became involved when director J.J. Abrams, a fan of the series, requested a screening of the film. Coscarelli told him that he did not have a high-quality print, but Abrams volunteered the use of his technicians for a restoration. The completed restoration premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival in March of 2016 in Austin, Texas. Phantasm Remastered was released in limited theaters on September 4th, 2016, and was released on Blu-ray on December 6, 2016. Thanks, J.J. Abrams, for being a nerd of the highest caliber. Up next, we have a special interview segment from the live show we did over at the Fourth Wall PDX with Forgotten Fantasies as part of the Ha Ha Harvest Festival. Joining us for that show is Ryan Danley, host of Another Goddamn Horror Podcast, Michael Garcia, director of Forgotten Fantasies and the Dark Arts Festival, as well as comedian Max Brockman coming through to riff on one of the strangest horror films ever made. Hey everybody, we're getting ready to get things started over here with Science Factual and a little bit of a deep dive into Phantasm. So can we get everybody's hands together, please, for Reese Hendrick and Science Factual. Thank you, Michael. What's up, Fourth Wall? How are we doing tonight? Thank you so much for coming out and being part of the Paha Harvest Festival. Super awesome to be here. Uh, we are joined by one of the horror gurus that I know, Ryan Danley. Hello, Ryan. What's up? <laughs> We're also joined by Max Brockman. Hey, nice to be here. Good to see you. And last but certainly not least, Michael Garcia. What's up, man? Hey, uh, I, it's nice to sit down for the first time. There you go, yeah. Enjoy yourself. Well, we're going to enjoy some phantasmagorical clips here in a little bit. But before we get started, I do want to learn a little bit more about our guests. So I'm going to ask a few questions, a few interview-style questions. We're going to start with Ryan. Ryan, what's your Instagram? My Instagram is Ryan Danley Tells Jokes. You sure do. I do. Yeah. And they're funny. They're all right. Yeah. I've chuckled. Yeah, they're in these labber. Michael, we know your scooter computer. With, with K's, not that's, C's. That's true. Max, what do we got on the IG? Uh, Max Top Rock, and it's with two F's. Cool. Alrighty. Well, you can follow them on Instagram for all of their various social media bullshits. Cool beans. So, Ryan, how did you get started in stand up comedy? My life fell apart in my 20s and um, <laughs> and uh, I had like all these like terrible things go on uh, like a lot of like self-fulfilling uh, you know like, like, I, like I fucked it all up you know and uh, and then I rose from the problems and I and I and I changed my my life and uh, um, in that decision I decided the best thing that I could do was to follow my lifelong dream of uh, telling jokes to strangers and hanging out in bars. So that's that's how I did it. And I've been doing stand-up for five to six years, depending on how you how you count it with the pandemic. And that's it. Solid. Well, uh, Michael, I realize that we never actually got into this line of questioning when we did Altered States for the season two opener. So what, how did you get your start in stand-up? Uh, yeah, uh, it's a good question. Because um, uh, stand-up isn't even really the main direction I've gone in comedy. It was something that I think I picked up and uh, like tried to learn some skills of. Same, same as like taking, I took some improv classes initially. I mean, everything really began honestly with um, the fact I had no friends as a kid. So I just mm. made fun of things on TV, and then Mystery Science Theater came along, mm. and I thought, wow, we should be doing that stuff live in a room with other people, but how do I do that? And uh, I just uh, went out and started watching comedy and taking classes and just trying to find, build a toolkit to apply to my own little weird uh, sandbox over in the corner of the playground. Nice. Well, and we're all thankful for it, because it's, oh, you, you put on some super rad stuff, dude. Max, how did you get started in stand-up? Uh, Ryan's life fell apart mid-late 20s, <laughs> is that what you said? Early 20s over here. I, yeah. uh, so I think because Ryan's life fell apart, you started <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I think it was just a butterfly wave. Right. I had severe social anxiety. I wanted to find a way to like break that exposure therapy, so talking to drunks was my thing, and kind of worked. Very cool. Well, uh, so we're going to go back around. Uh, Ryan, what's your first exposure to horror films? And then I'm going to ask the follow-up, what's your first exposure to science fiction? 
So with horror, I mean, I'm just going to say it, Scooby-Doo, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> Scooby-Doo is proper horror, and, uh, oh, yeah, um, it, although I did write an article for the Hard Times called the ACAB, including the Scooby Gang, <laughs> <laughs> because we got to admit, they're a little tight with the cops, um, but no, I love Scooby-Doo, I just, uh, I, since, since I was a kid, I just always enjoyed seeing, like, my mother's a horror head, too, so, like, like, she was reading all those Stephen King books as they came out, and we watched all those movies, you know, I lived in Colorado and in New England as a kid, so, like, Stephen King was pretty pronounced in my life as a horror person. Like, so just everything that always had that horror aesthetic or horror uh, thing has just always just intrigued me since I was a kid. The first horror movie that I ever, like, watched that was on TV back when, like, shit was, like, on TV TV, you know, like, um, and it was... Uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which has, uh, if anyone's seen it, it's actually making a go-round now on the streaming channels, but it, it sent me in two directions, and loving horror, and also loving um, bigoted rednecks get murdered. So, well, old horror like that is making a second roundabout with stuff like Shudder, you know, like, yeah, as yeah, much and, as and in fact, cool it, is on yeah. it is on Shudder. It is on Shudder, yep. That's yeah, awesome to see. Don't sleep on Tubi. That's my horror advice. Not sleeping on TV. Uh, science fiction, you know. Um, He's right. Uh, science fiction. I I I love science fiction, and science fiction has always just gone hand in hand with a lot of horror for me. You know, I am from the Star Wars era. You sure. know what I mean? And so I would say that um, you know that sort of stuff. I also have an uncle, rest in peace, who um, who was who was a science teacher and. A fanatical Star Trek fan, fanatical thing, and uh, we we always watch sci-fi together. He's the one who took me to see RoboCop, which is, um, even though I'm a horror fanatic, RoboCop is actually my favorite movie of all time, and uh, and such a fantastic science fiction movie. And, sure is. Uh, yeah. It's both a parody of '80s action movies while being an amazing '80s action movie in and of itself. Totally. Um, Running Man is another one of those. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, Michael, what's your first horror intro? I, I think the first one I can recall, and, and I was very young, I, I think maybe four-ish or so, I was watching a show called Creature Features by Bob Wilkins out of uh, KTVU, um, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. It was a late-night um, horror show where they would usually play cheesy or you know just very cheap B, C, Z-style movies. But as I said, I was, a, I was very young, and I was watching a film called War of the Gargantuas, and it's basically two giant King Kong motherfuckers going to battle, just tearing up a city. And out the gate, that just seemed like a Godzilla, King Kong kind of jam. I was totally on board. I'm watching it. My mom was having a little bit of a party. I can remember her friends coming and sitting down to watch with me. I can only now presume that was with joints in hand, but didn't know that at the time. The movie it just starts calmly like any man-in-suit kaiju film, but then when the first attack happens where you see the actual attack, the kaiju are routing people, and we're watching them eat them on screen. And there's a sequence where a guy punches in a window, grabs a woman, eats her, and then spits her clothes out onto the ground. And that scene haunted me for like 30 years. It is one of the two shows that is the reason Forgotten Fantasies exists. Forgotten Fantasies is a show about uh, revisiting forgotten pop culture memories of our guests. And me and my friends used to just sit around and do it for ourselves. And this was one of those, because I had no idea what the name was. And it took me, like, 30 years to track that film down. And what, what is it again? War of the Gargantuans. I'll have to put that on the list. Very cool. Yeah, it, it's horrifying for a zipper suit film. I mean, it, it, it is as cheap as they come. But, man, it's uh, hardcore for any five-year-old. That's true. When I was five, I watched Cube. No, <laughs> yeah, I mean, kids are on a whole new level now. But yeah, and, and on the sci-fi tip, it was probably just TV's uh, original series, Star Trek. Sure, that's the oldest thing I can kind of remember. It's a classic. Max, uh, my parents didn't really let me watch horror, but with the movies, they didn't pay attention. So I was a big Saw because my age Saw, Final Destination, Resident Evil, Baby. I just like saw them come out as I getting older. So I was just used to, like, horror movies having, like, five horrible sequels. I just got used to that right away. Totally. But uh, sci-fi would be a first was this comedy. Like, I got into Hitchhiker's Guide and all that stuff. 
So it was like two different worlds for a while. And then finally I saw Insane Clowns from Outer Space. Oh, that was yeah. Like, yeah. That was the first time I saw them, like, collide. And, uh, yeah, have a look back. Nice. Solid choice. Well, we are here to talk about Phantasm. I just want to stop for a second and just give A a shout-out to Angus Scrim yes, in general. Um, yeah, and uh, because he's in a lot of it, and he passed away a few years ago, and um, I think 2016, 2015, anyways. Um, and also, the dude's name is Angus Scrim. <laughs> like, I mean, like, and then he plays the tall man, and like, you know what I mean? They should have yeah, just said right. Angus Scrim. Just roll with that. You yeah, know what he, I mean? Like, he epitomizes the, like, the character just existing. Right. And like all, all they did to make him a character was put a suit that was too small on him. Well, right, because he's actually not that tall. Yeah. Uh, he's like 6'3 or 6'2 yeah. or 6'3. I'm, I'm like, taller than the tall. Yeah, right. But, uh, but, they, but they, they filmed him in a way and put him in, like a, in a short thing. Anyways, he's amazing through it all. And it, it, it wasn't even like his main job being an actor. But like he was just like, uh, he's just a really like a, a great person. Like a great, a great part of horror. Fra- like, like there's such a purity to his role and to who he is. And all yeah, he is certainly iconic for sure. Um, you know, we've talked about it enough. I think we should get into some clips, you guys. So I, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at the Phantasm 1 through 4 trailers and then the Phantasm Ravager trailer so we get a little bit of a taste of what the series is all about. Yeah, it, it's the, the broken logic and dreaminess of this film that fucked me up so much as a kid. It wasn't just scary. It, it just, it was disconcerting. What, what was your take when you saw it for the first time in the theater? Like, right away. Well, um, well I, I didn't understand what was going on exactly, but it, my biggest take was that, uh, and I think it, it, it's a through line for most um, horror films for kids, but it was that you can't trust the adults, and, and you really are isolated and on your own, and it just, it just reinforce the uh, universe is a terrible place in reality. Well, you're, you're from that age where, I mean, Sean O'Neill just did on this again, Children of the Corn. Like, it, it's ingrained in your psyche that, like, children are up to no good. Well, yeah, because uh, that was the era where children were supposed to be, you know, seen, not heard. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think, like, even the trailer we saw earlier called it an adult nightmare. My God, there's kids. <laughs> <laughs> If you, uh, a little personal plug, if you are interested, uh, the artist Skinner, who's really rad, who suggests if you don't know who he is, uh, check him out. Uh, we interviewed him on another goddamn horror podcast. We actually, just a few weeks ago, talked about the uh, the lonely kid syndrome of of 80s, 70s, and 80s horror, like movies like The Gate and mm-hmm. like a bunch of, you know, that, that kids were alone and the adults just like wouldn't listen to what they had to say that was like that is like such a common trope in that era like like no we're really gonna die and the kid and the adults were like you know fuck off yeah and it doesn't even just apply to horror films i mean that's the same stuff you're seeing in the family sci-fi of like et or when you're uh yeah i mean i mean it just feels like everything back then kind of aimed that way to just the suburban isolation of parents who have checked out. It's the latchkey yeah, kid like, oh, generation. Oh, oh, you know? Yeah, latchkey yeah. kids. Suburbia kids, uh, yeah. for the punk films, Repo Man. I, you know, I, I, I use all your college money for you know, the church. <laughs> right. um, like, no joke, I didn't need a key around my neck, but I wanted to get one because it looked cool. Like, because kids, that's how it was, like, in third grade. Status simple. It was like, yeah, like, I got to, like, I'm a fucking latchkey kid. You know what I mean? And, like, you know, I, but my parents would let me do it. But, um, what but, it unlocks is trauma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, So, before we move on to other Phantasm trailers, first of all, who's seen Fat Phantasm? Joe has. Yes. Forum, everybody. Nice. That's Who hasn't seen Phantasm? So, who's, oh, seen, guys, who's seen Phantasm 2 or more? Awesome. Three, three hands. Yeah, no, that's that's enough hands to keep going. Fantastic right, two, greatest action film ever. Let's let's check out how weird the rest of the series. I, is. I will just I will just say one thing about Phantasm real quick is that the '79 movie is like we can watch it now and go, oh, it's this and oh, it's that. But you have to imagine how like ahead of its time it was, because it isn't like if you compare it to like like the horror of the time, like Rosemary's Baby and things like that, like. 
which are more like dramas with horror woven through it. It is more like a whole different take from that, where it's like this very surreal world. And, uh, and that's what kind of makes it amazing. And then also like the scene that was on the, like when like the ball stabs the guy and the blood comes shooting out of the thing. I mean, like they made Halloween in 79 with zero blood. You know what I mean? So to have like that graphic violence and that like really excessive, you know what I mean? Like that was like, like a thing at the time, you know what I mean? It's like, so it's a, it's a pretty spectacular movie in that, A, that it's like really like a first like independent movie. And also like it really pushed a lot of boundaries in, in like movie making in general. So um, I think it came out ahead of its time as in like people were like, oh, I don't know what's going on with this. Or like Michael's like, I don't really understand because we were spoon fed a lot of bullshit before that. Now that we've kind of grown, we can all look back at it and be like, oh yeah, this is like more of like a conceptual piece of, of art, you know, as opposed to just like like the like typical archetypes that we came up with before that. So yeah, well, you know, on that note, that I, I do yeah. want to uh, uh, follow up on that. Regarding that specific scene where, where he takes the bloodshot and the body collapses, like when we were watching it the other night, I think I pointed out the urine puddle that builds under the body after he collapses. And it's almost subtle. The camera doesn't like do a, you know, a smash zoom into it or anything. It's just happening as the kid's processing. And it was something that just felt like almost insidious to me as a kid. It was it was a level of dirty horror I had never seen. Yeah, I mean, it's on par with the exorcism pee. It's like, it, it just is jarring in and of itself because it wasn't something that was, like, done necessarily before. I think you bring up a good point, Ryan, and so far as that, like, it does, it's not excessive gore for the sake of excessive gore, but it does feature gore and blood in a way that other horror films of the time didn't necessarily jump into that are considered, like, staples of the genre, so... I mean, and you can literally see, like, five years from this, the immediate effect of, like, being comfortable all of a sudden having, like, super blood-drenched scenes. So almost, like, comically blood. You know what I right. mean? Like, Evil Dead and all that shit. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, a really almost a direct, like, everybody saw this and was like, oh, I can actually create a universe of insanity. And, like, and like that really, put, it really pushed over, like, a first domino effect in that music. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you can make a pretty direct line to, like, Raimi or Peter Jackson directly from this film. Absolutely. I just, like, back in the old days, you could just, like, roll up to a house and get, like, you know, like a fortune teller, you know? Yeah. And this is the most rocking grandma in the history of movies. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't realize Ozzy was in this movie. That's crazy. Cameo. <laughs> <laughs> like she looks more like Ozzy than Ozzy looks like. <laughs> This is the kind of job I need. I need to like run like a, like you know what I mean. Like what a perfect thing to hang out. People show up. You don't have to move at all. You don't have to do much of anything. Dude, somebody, somebody read Dune. Put your hand up. Fear is the mind killer, dude. Fear is the mind killer. Yep. It's such, really to, such a weird thing to tell somebody who's hand stuck in a thing that hurts. Don't fear. Oh, okay. Just, just, just let go of the cookie, dude. <laughs> Karen! <laughs> These fucking boobs are coming. You're talking about putting that in the it's like put money on top of the money disappears with the box. So she's dead. Oh. It's so good. Real estate. It's gotta be a lot of yeah. all the budget. You gotta build a lot. Yeah. The most ambitious ice cream truck ever. This thing Reggie, is awesome. Reggie's a bad motherfucker. Yeah, Reggie television. is a bad man. Hey, hey, here's that music video I was yeah. talking about, everybody. Yeah. It's a random jam sesh. At least their guitars are in tune for this one. 
Good product placement for Dos Equis, too. So they got paid an exposure. Yeah, they, yeah, they got paid an exposure, yeah. <laughs> for this scene. Is it, is it, is it, yeah. After the whole movie, you get this, you get yeah, video they shoehorned it in. Yeah, the funny thing is, is, this kid could have avoided all of the problems of this movie if he just didn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, if he just saw that shit and was just like, you know what, I'm just not going to fuck with it. Like... This is a great example of why you should mind your business. Yeah, his yeah. biggest flaw is being far too nosy. Right, like remember sleuths? You guys remember like sleuthing? Like that's a like that's a that was like a legitimate thing that kids did. Like in all of like media that I watched and read as a kid, like the Hardy Boys and shit, the Scooby Gang. Everybody was sleuths, you know. Yeah, can, yeah. can you explain who that guy was? I, no, he's, he's just he's, a, he's, he's just he's, a guy. He's just right? a guy walking around in there, and yeah. then like, so I think he's like like trying to break in. He ends up like chasing him. There isn't a lot. Of, this is why this movie's like a little confusing because there is a lot of like dead like dead end characters. They just have this guy walking around, and then he will want to kill this kid because the truth is is that if aimless random men are in spaces and they see a child, they will kill them. But he gets taken care of by Phantasm Ball. See, I think, like, if I was this kid, I would have, like, become friends with the Tawin. You know what I mean? Like, oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's the better choice. Oh, yeah. It's like... Have <laughs> you ever seen Satan's Little Helper? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Just like... Just, just, or like that kid on Family Guy who just befriends the Chester Molester guy. He's like, yeah, you know, as long as, I, as long as I'm helping him take other people down, I'm safe. I'm just saying, like, if, if if I have a choice between, like, being cool with, like, satanic, supernatural, tall man creature, and or, like, the ice cream guy <laughs> who, who plays acoustic guitar, I'm going, I'm going tall man every time. I, I agree with that, especially, like, that scene at the end when they're having the conversation by firelight. Yeah, it's creepy. He's like, yeah, you know, what we need is a change of scenery, and what I think he means is the bedroom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it isn't, it, it hasn't aged well. No, it has not. So it's just is, a is, it the, is it the groundskeeper? It might be the groundskeeper. Because he's wearing, like, a blue jumper. Oh, yeah. Anyways, blood is delicious. Yeah, this is so good. <laughs> Like, ah, uh, yeah. Uh, no, no, there's a blood. It's nice to see a ball for a friend. That's my favorite part right there. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And then the spout. The chocolate spout. Oh, it's so good. I'm so sorry. This doesn't usually happen. <laughs> oh, look at that. I'm going to water the lawn. All right, and, and here it comes right here. Oh, God. oh, fuck that! That, that, that was some. That was a rather explosive pee. Yeah. <laughs> Frothy. Yeah, it's legit piss. You know. Okay. Uh, hey, hey, Angus was an old guy. They just have him leave the yeah. pens out. I don't think he's that old in this movie. Actually, it's like one of those. It's like Wilford Brimley. He's like one of those guys yeah. who was always old. Yeah. You because know? Wilford Brimley, like in the thing, still still old guy, and I think I'm currently older than he was in the thing. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 We had the ketchup earlier. Yeah. We needed the mustard. We needed some mustard. That's right. And what about some French fries? Oh, there you this go. kid is so dope. This kid is so dope that he's yeah. like, "This is weird. I'm gonna take a finger." Yeah. You know what I mean? This kid is a. This kid is like a future black metal singer. Yeah, you like, he's like, Yo, "Fuck this. I'm taking one of these fingers." It is perhaps the most ridiculous use of a gun in a horror film oh, I've ever man. seen in my it's life. It's so good. Every time I watch it, I just think about, like, actually doing that. And uh, <laughs> every time the one where he shoots, it just shoots right by his face. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So he's, he's going, Jody's going in to investigate. He's like, all right, what exactly is going on here? I'm, I'm going to go in through this already broken window. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> that scene could have ended so much better. 
All right, so this is the where it gets into a sci-fi angle. You know, they come across the room, which is where they house all of the people that they have uh, have killed and then turned into like two-foot versions of them. So I'm a really big fan of like science elements and horror in general. Like I just really like, I mean, of course, Event Horizon is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Like Color of Space. Whenever they're like, okay, this could be like sort of, you know, technically the It Clown is a is a uh, alien as well. Oh, Pennywise? Yeah. You have to say that like Reggie not only plays guitar, not only wears the leather vest, not only isn't afraid to like fuck with the tuning things, but he's also pretty comfortable wearing all white, which uh, terrifies me. As, uh, you know what I mean? Like, if, if I'm wearing a white shirt, I'm like, I'll, I can't not think about it all day. You know what I mean? Like, see, now his, see his white clothes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who yeah. knew he had a soft jelly center? <laughs> all right, Reggie dies. It was all just a nightmare. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's going to take a lot more than good advice for me not to be afraid of... From a fraud. Well, just like arm. Right, exactly. Uh, The, like, hands coming out and, like, grabbing my... Yeah, that's an appropriate time to have fear. Yeah, like, this is, like, there's, there's, there's a reason why you have fear. Well, I assure you this kid either has no fear or is just dumb because he MacGyvers a hammer shotgun at one point to escape his room. Uh, he ties a shotgun shell to the tip of a hammer and knocks it against the lock on his door to escape. <laughs> and he doesn't die. And he doesn't die, no. <laughs> He's not superpowers. So, but yeah, we, we were talking while we were watching this the other day, and he's like, he just has a bullet in his desk, and I was like, I did in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> the 70s. Yeah. And after watching this movie, I considered hammering it often. <laughs> Alright, at this point, they quote-unquote capture the Tall man in a mine shaft, an abandoned mine shaft piece. This is that incredibly sexy scene, uh, weird scene. They're on a bearskin rug, right? Yeah, there's there, there's that shit. image of Burt Reynolds also on a bearskin <laughs> rug above. Burt <laughs> Reynolds is a bearskin rug. <laughs> Well, folks, uh, thank you so much for joining. This This episode is going to air uh, next Tuesday. That is the 29th on Shady Pines Radio from 8 to 9 a.m. Uh, it will also be posted again on Spotify, so you'll hear the facts behind the movie, uh, as well as some other interesting tidbits, along with an edited version of what you saw here today. So uh, before we go again, this has been Ryan Danley. You can follow Ryan at Ryan Danley Tells Jokes. Also, another goddamn horror podcast. Follow that. Check it out. He is incredibly knowledgeable. Ryan, thank you thank for joining you. us. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. Thank you. Max, thank you as well for stopping in. Uh, again, you can follow at max.brockman on the Instagram machine for some uh, some of your stuff that's coming up. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Michael, thank you so much for ha- for doing this, man. You know, it's always awesome to do Forgotten Fantasies, VHS Vengeance, Dark Arts Festival, and the list goes on. Uh, Sound and Vision. I mean, you know, like you, you've got a lot of really awesome stuff going on, so we all appreciate you. Yeah, man. Th- thank you so much, and it has been a thrill working with you, Reese. Uh, this has been fantastic. Cheers. Uh, and I am going to throw a uh, quick little thing out there, though. Uh, check out ffthishow.com. All of my stuff is on there. Yes, it is. And thank you so much to The Fourth Wall, PDX. Thank you so much, Cassie. You guys are awesome. And stick around for the rest of the awesome shows here on the Ha Ha Harvest Festival. Yeah, we'll uh, be getting up and running with some stand-up here in about five to ten minutes. So stick around, everybody. I just realized that this was the fourth show I've done at the Fourth Wall PDX, including three episodes of Science Factual and Michael Garcia's birthday show Takeover. Major shout out to Shannon Hunt for putting on the Ha Ha Harvest Festival, as well as Cassie and Neil over at the Fourth Wall for being awesome proprietors and for hosting so many great events within the comedy community and beyond. Make sure to follow them for announcements on all the cool stuff they have going on. That's at the Fourth Wall PDX. 
Since Phantasm has basically one sci-fi theme, being the interplanetary gate between our world and the slave planet from where the tall man hails and where his minions are sent to toil for eternity, we're going to keep it real for this week's water cooler facts with a look at what actually goes down after you die and how cemeteries mitigate the ever-growing mountain of our eventual corpses. The BBC takes a very concise and British approach to describing the process of decomposition with an article I found on the future section of their site, written by Mohab Kostandi. In part, that reads, Far from being dead, a rotting corpse is teeming with life. A growing number of scientists view a rotting corpse as the cornerstone of a vast and complex ecosystem, which emerges soon after death and flourishes and evolves as decomposition proceeds. Decomposition begins several minutes after death with a process called autolysis, or self-digestion. Soon after the heart stops beating, cells become deprived of oxygen, and their acidity increases as the toxic byproducts of chemical reactions begin to accumulate inside of them. Enzymes start to digest cell membranes and then leak out as the cells break down. This usually begins in the liver, which is rich in enzymes, and in the brain, which has high water content. Eventually, though, all other tissues and organs begin to break down in this way. Damaged blood cells begin to spill out of broken vessels and, aided by gravity, settle into the capillaries and small veins, discoloring the skin. Body temperature also begins to drop until it has acclimatized to its surroundings. Then, rigor mortis, the stiffness of death, sets in, starting in the eyelids, jaw, and neck muscles before working its way into the trunk and then the limbs. In life, muscle cells contract and relax due to the actions of two filamentous proteins, actin and myosin, which slide along each other. After death, the cells are depleted of their energy source and the protein filaments become locked in place. This causes the muscles to become rigid and locks the joints, otherwise known as rigor mortis. The article goes on to describe in great detail the rest of the decomposition process through to putrefication, so make sure to check that readout if you want those juicy, gory details. And we didn't even get into maggot territory, so definitely check that article out. But how are we doing space-wise? A lot of us, like, die all the time, and we must be running out of space by now, right? It's not like graveyards are getting any bigger. Well, that's especially true in places like the UK and mainland Europe, where limited space has prompted the shift in perspective to being more conscientious with how they deal with their dead. Anthropologists laud the common human practice of burying our dead as one of the hallmark traits that sets us apart from other apes. Town planners, on the other hand, lament it, for these individuals face an impossible dilemma. Most of the graveyards and cemeteries are nearly full, yet people have a nasty habit of continuing to die. In the UK, partly because of the surge of in-town and city living, the problem of where to put all these bodies is a particularly thorny one. According to research published in early 2021, a quarter of council-owned cemeteries will be full to capacity within 10 years, and one in six will be full within five. So, how might we avoid the nightmarish situation of stacking our dead in the streets? What might we do to avoid a serious crisis in the way that we manage our dead? Recycling graves is the one obvious option. The graves of people who died 150 years ago tend not to get many visitors unless you're Edgar Allan Poe, so those that have recently passed can be laid to rest on top with very little fuss. The pros to recycling graves in this way are that it's cheaper and it means potentially that families can be buried in the same graveyards, a final request that is increasingly difficult to honor. This practice is commonplace in Germany. In Greece and Spain, a similar approach is to rent a niche, an above-ground crypt where bodies are laid to rest and decompose naturally before the remains are removed and put into a communal grave. Again, the benefit of this practice is that it increases the through-flow of burials, making a more efficient use of space. When it comes to dealing with the dead, perhaps the best space-saving option is cremation, the UK's preferred post-life practice. According to 2019 data, 78% of British funerals involved cremations, making it the go-to option for many. Yet cremation does have its downsides. Environmentally, there's the hundreds of kilograms of carbon dioxide produced by a body when it's cremated, not to mention the vaporized mercury that comes from tooth fillings, which alone may account for 16% of mercury emissions. In the UK, natural burials, where the process of decomposition is accelerated through the use of compostable coffins that are buried nearer the surface, has become increasingly popular. To hasten things even further, some companies use coffins made of mycelium, mushroom-like fibers that contribute to the decomposition process, speeding it up threefold. Remains can even be dug up and used as compost. 
Through technologies like these, which allow for greater throughflow of burial sites, it's possible that in the future we might be able to unlock new parts of our landscape as places to bury our dead, including highway embankments and bike paths. I don't know, I'm not sure I want to be buried right next to the 405, although it does feel like a graveyard when you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. So here are some alternatives you can arrange before slipping away into the darkness. Donating your body to medical science is one way to make yourself useful after death, but what if you want to do something that's not so run-of-the-mill? Well, car manufacturers like to demonstrate the efficiency of their vehicle safety features by showing you slow-motion videos of dummies getting thrown about during a collision. What they're less than enthusiastic to admit is that they've likely used dead bodies in the same test to see how the impacts affect their internal organs. Body World's exhibitions feature real corpses and organs that have been preserved through plastination, a technique invented by German Dr. Gunther von Hagens. Leave it up to a German to invent something super creepy. If you're willing to go on display after your bodily fluids and soluble fat have been replaced by liquid plastic, you too could donate your body to the Institute for Plastination. You can still make yourself useful after you've been cremated depending on what happens to your ashes. Scattering them on soil, they'll act as a general fertilizer, but if you want something more specific, you can have them added to a bio-urn, a biodegradable container that's packed with soil and used for tree seed germination. You can also finally put out your own record. An audio recording of your voice or music that held a special meaning for you is one way that loved ones can treasure your memory. If, however, you'd like the keepsake to bear slightly more of your physical presence, you can get andvinyly.com to press your ashes into the vinyl on which your voice and music is printed. Whatever you end up doing, make sure you plan for it. You never know when your time to meet the tall man is nigh. <laughs> I'd like to thank my sources for today's episode, including denofgeek.com, sciencefocus.com, imdb.com, fangoria.com, and of course, wikipedia.com. Because if it's on Wikipedia, it was the product of someone's nightmare. Next week takes us firmly back into the realm of sci-fi with a dive into the X-Men series. Bub. We'll be covering everything from the comic book origins to movies and games, as well as what's coming up next for the Marvel staple with guest comedian, the incredibly funny, James Bosquez. You can check that episode out airing Tuesday, December 6th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Download the free Shady Pines Radio app for Android and iOS or visit us online at ShadyPinesRadio.com for amazing content 24 hours a day, 7 days a week from Portland and beyond. Before we cross over to another dimension, let's get our final laughs in with this set from Ryan Danley. Enjoy, while you still can. Y'all taking that uh, CBD oil? <laughs> yeah, that shit is weak. <laughs> Me? I take PCP oil. <laughs> yeah, you might not have, like, inflammation, but I just fought six cops. <laughs> I win. Right on the internet today, somebody just referred to the uh, last year of the Trump presidency as a dumpster fire. I don't really care where y'all land politically. I don't think that's a fair statement. Because dumpster fires are fucking awesome. <laughs> At least the ones I start are. <laughs> Shit is majestic. I've dated a lot of women who work at Starbucks. I know what y'all are thinking. It's because I'm smooth like an Italian shot of espresso. <laughs> More like a white mocha frappuccino. You know, like full of fat and wish I was black. <laughs> I hate racists. I argue with racists on all the time. Like I just like I like I hate them. I had a racist tell me the other day, "You just hate yourself because you're white." I said, motherfucker, being white doesn't make the top 10 reasons I hate myself. <laughs> Clearly, you've never seen me at 3 a.m. in my boxer shorts, eating fistfuls of shredded cheese straight out of the bag. 
You know, you're all lucky to see me here. Every last one of you lucky. Because someday when I have my own Netflix special, you're going to be like, didn't I see that serial killer doing stand-up comedy? <laughs> Nah, I could never be a serial killer. Those dudes work way too hard for me. It's like a lot of driving. Dog people here, cat people? I like them, I, I like them both. I think they both should be paid the same. You know? If you don't like one of those animals, I suggest, like, like, you find something about that animal that speaks to you, you know? Like, you know, like a cat likes to be pet when it likes to be pet, and it likes to be left alone when it likes to be left alone. And I feel that, you know? And I understand what it's like to be a dog, because I like to be choked with a leash. <laughs> I like going to the dog park, you know? It's the only place on earth you can see men hit on women with a bag of shit in their hands. You know? <laughs> you guys want to get some sushi after this? Or what? <laughs> My favorite is like, like the hipster couple that just like adopted a pit bull. They're like super proud of themselves. Like they freed the slaves, you know? <laughs> they always say the same shit. They're like, can you imagine these dogs biting somebody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Clearly you and I have different drug dealers. <laughs> You guys ever get out of Portland? Out there in Hidden Valley Ranch of America, you know? <laughs> you know what you find out there? Kid Rock fans. <laughs> Literal fans of Kid Rock's music. <laughs> no, I love Oxycontin and fried bologna sandwiches as much as the next guy. <laughs> but I have no idea why that guy is still so fucking famous. <laughs> like, when do you even tell somebody you're like a Kid Rock fan on a date? <laughs> it comes somewhere between like herpes and sexual predator registry, right? <laughs> the only reasonable explanation for being a Kid Rock fan is if you were raised underneath a strip club stage. <laughs> like some sort of Cracker Barrel and Frank. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank you, Portland. Folks, this is Michael Phelps, host of Father's Favorites and the Comedy Open Mic at my father's place, conveniently located at 523 Southeast Grand Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Mic sign-ups are Fridays at 8.30 p.m. Come on by for some awesome breakfast food, great drinks, and the best comedians Portland and the Pacific Northwest has to offer. In the meantime, make sure you follow Science Factual on the socials. That's at Science Factual Pod, as well as Shady Pines Radio for amazing content 24 hours a day, 8 days a week. Download the app today wherever you procure your apps. listening to shadypinesradio.com here's the lineup for tuesday starting at 8 a.m science factual with reese hendrick at 9 a.m emotional weather report with jamie stewart beat salad with mason o'brien at 11 a.m at noon the blue hour with blue corviday northwest comedy hour with emily june at 1 p.m at 2 p.m the prog hour with reagan lindy 
your own private PDX with DJ Squiffy at 3 p.m. At 4 p.m., Cosmic Taco Beach Shack with Big Papa Warrior. No Dancing Please with L. Ron Hubbard at 5 p.m. At 6 p.m., Anything New with Shorty L. Toasty Tunes with Alex Toast at 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., Radio Seance with Your Psychic Friends. At 9 p.m., Fresh Unoriginal with DJ Wineglass. Turntable Talk with Chili and Bass at 10 p.m. And at 11 p.m., Taking Drugs to Play Music to Take Drugs to with Shampoo Douglas. No matter the day or time, you've picked the right time to listen in. Thanks for listening, and tell others. Shady Pines Radio.